Welcome to Faith in Politics. As Christians, we believe our faith should have an effect on every area of our lives, and this includes our politics. But how does this look when it is lived out in public life? How does it affect how we think about particular issues? And how do we put our faith into action? Here at Faith in Politics, we want to explore these questions through interviews with public figures and through biblical monthly musings on particular issues. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Joint Public Issues team's Faith in Politics podcast. Cameron, how are things with you? I'm very well, thank you. It's been a busy few weeks in Parliament. One of the things I love about this job is just how much the variety there is in it. Uh, So the other day I was helping Lord Griffiths with a debate on disused mills in the North Pennines and their repurposing. And then the following day we were doing doing a debate on algorithmic decision making in public policy. Couldn't think of two more different things to be uh, researching for a debate on, uh, but the variety is partly why I love the job. Sounds good. Um, What have you been up to? well, I guess I ventured over to your side of the house. Um, the better side. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Had a meeting with some lords. Um, looking at the Netherlands, which is quite interesting, I think. But definitely a very different vibe over there. Um, We're a bit more and... chilled in the House of Lords, I think. Yeah, maybe. Because we don't have to get elected. I say we, I'm not a lord. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> they're just a bit more relaxed going about their daily business. Did you, did you learn anything exciting about the Netherlands while you were there? Um not sure about what I learned, but I think it was great to see um, there's someone from the Dutch embassy there and seeing the relationship between the two countries was, yeah, nice to see that that happens um, at that level. Good stuff. And who have we been interviewing for the podcast this month? Yeah, so this month we have an interview with the Bishop of London, who is the third highest member of the Church of England Church. And so she's been in that position. Two years, I think. Two years, yeah. So Sarah Milani, um, she used to be the chief nursing officer and then entered the Church of England, has become a bishop, sitting in the House of Lords, so a very varied career with lots of valuable insights into how these things all fit together. Absolutely, and if you listen to January's podcast with Sir Desmond Swain, you'll remember that I got a bit lost on the way to that interview, and we're continuing that series of getting lost, we're making a habit of it. When we tried to find Bishop Sarah for this interview, we decided where we were going to hold it but Rosella and I didn't know how to get there. You had an excuse because you work in the House of Commons the majority of the time. You shouldn't know your way around the House of Lords. Mm. Me, on the other hand, uh, there was no excuse. Yeah. I'm used to the green carpets and suddenly everything was all red, so <laughs> very different place. Absolutely. But we got there in the end, didn't we, with a bit of help? We did. We did. We had help from um, Bethan, who was the host of Faith in Politics last year. She's still around Parliament working with various bishops there. And luckily she saved us. So there's hope that maybe in a year's time we might know where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope so. But without further ado, let's have a listen to what Bishop Sarah shared with us. Bishop Sarah, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I imagine when you first felt called to the ministry that being here in the House of Lords probably wasn't high on your list of expectations is this a place that you wouldn't necessarily choose to be in or do you feel fairly comfortable in the political arena? 
Yeah, I, I often say to people that, um, you know, in a sense for me, my call is to follow Jesus Christ. So that's always the first thing. So you never quite know where he's going to lead you. Um, so I'm not sure I expect you to be a bishop, let alone in the House of Lords. Um, and I'm very conscious of great privilege um, to be here. And actually, having been uh, the government's chief nursing officer, uh, so having been a civil servant, I wasn't unfamiliar with the mechanism of government. Um, but there is no doubt that for me, finding that way uh, to how I add best value to the role, um, you know, has been a challenge. Um, um, but actually, it is a great privilege, and I'm now beginning to find my way as well as my feet. <laughs> talk of the abolition or certainly the reform of the House of Lords is never far from the political agenda. Indeed, it's already cropped up in the Labour leadership election. And the automatic place of bishops in the House of Lords is usually something that comes up in those discussions. Mm. How do you feel about the current model? And is there anything that you would change about it if you had the opportunity? Well, I'm very aware that it is a privilege, which is why I've sought to understand how to use the role uh, appropriately and well. Um, and also the fact as well is what does it mean to be a Lord spiritual rather than a than a Lord's temporal. So, um, so therefore, you know, we're not, uh, we don't represent a, a constituents, but we do, in a sense, uh, represent our Christian faith. So therefore, when we speak into it, what are we saying about God as much as about what are we saying about the the politics that they so there is that road to navigate I think you know as you say a lot of people discuss about the reform uh, of the House of Lords and whether that will happen or not you, you know we, we have yet to see uh, around it but I do think there is great value in having a group of people who in a sense don't have a constituent body we don't represent a group we are not political um, now that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't speak into the political agenda um, because in fact a lot of our motivation for our faith would be a motivation to do that but we're not political um, and so I think whatever happens in the future it is important to have that that voice within it. I also think there's a, a belief that um, uh, you, you know that there isn't a, a voice for other religions well often you know, a lot of the people in the Lords are spiritual and have faith or no faith. There is a, there is a huge voice uh, of individuals which do sometimes choose uh, to reflect their faith in what they answer. So there's a huge variety in, in the Lords. Uh, and I slightly feel that, uh, you know, there may well be the reform of the Lords. Well, I think if there is, it has to be done well. Um, and there then is a point at which that as the Lord's spiritual, we would carefully consider that along with everybody else. In terms of what I would reform, uh, I would stop us wearing robes. That would, that's what I would reform. <laughs> um, so on a slightly different topic, you mentioned that you were the um, chief nursing officer and have had many exp years of experience in the NHS. How has that shaped your vo vocation within the church and now in the political sphere? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, as I often say, you know, I've had one vocation to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and that has meant at times that I, um, so I was a a nurse and then a priest and a bishop uh, and have had involved continued involvement with the health service right up mm. to today and of course the priest and the bishop I am has been shaped by that experience and um, you know people often say it must be so different well it isn't mm. uh, because it's been all about people and and I have a passion for people and um, so nursing in a sense has formed the priest I am both in terms of how I engage with people and how I have a uh, you know, in a sense, it is life in all its fullness, and whether that's, and therefore, there is this 
interconnection between health and spirituality. Um, uh, so that is very much there. Um, I often uh, tell the story of how it shaped me that, um, you know, standing at the back of uh, Salisbury Cathedral and I was a canon treasurer, um, you know, people would come up and ask great theological questions of my colleagues. And then as they got to me, they would ask me about their varicose ulcers. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and whilst I knew very little about varicose ulcers, mm-hmm. ulcers it, people do perceive me differently, which mm-hmm. actually I think is a gift sometimes. Um, it, you know, and I do believe God uses all our experiences, so it is a gift. Um, and I feel very fortunate, having been uh, the government's chief nursing officer, because that has, in a sense, shaped the way I um, I operate my ministry as a bishop, because that was very formational and not dissimilar. Um, but I also did a lot of my tough theology in secular employment. And, you know, often we think as bishops or priests that we have the monopoly on theology, but actually the, the real hard theology is done by those people in secular employment because they have to work out what it is to be a Christian you know seven days a week whether it's in Sainsbury's or in a hospital or or as a judge and that's often the hard theology and sometimes we forget that they've done the work um, that we uh, that we think we should be doing but they've done it. That's great Um, and obviously the NHS was a big topic in the last election with many describing the NHS as a crisis point is that something you've experienced? And if so, what do you believe is the, the root of this issue? Well, I'm a great supporter of the NHS. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's a wonderful reflection of both um, us as a nation, because it's around compassion and humanity. Uh, it's care free at the point of need, which I just think is a real, uh, in a sense, you know, if you talk about British values, I think that's a British value in a sense. But also it's a reflection of individuals. So individuals have chosen um, to take uh, this career in the NHS ranging from people who are porters to consultants to nurses and midwives and they are vocational steps so I also think it's a wonderful reflection of individuals and I'm very proud of my uh, nursing background and I do think we should celebrate the National Health Service but it will always be under strain uh, you, you know um, there is increasing medical advancements which will always cost us you know we've got an aging population so there will always be an increasing demand on our health service and we have got raised expectations we have a high expectation so so there will always be a tension between what people's expectations are and what we should be providing and what as a country are we willing to offer however I do believe that at this moment in time the NHS is again under pressure it has been in the past and it is again now Um, and at the end of last year all 118 of our A&E departments failed their targets the first time in the 10 years that they have been there And there is some debate about doing away with those targets. I think that would be appalling because it begins to shift the goalposts of of some measurement that is good for patients and good for care. Um, So I do think we as a society have to invest in what we believe in. And that's not just in terms of money, but also the value we give people and the credit we give them. Um, And, you know, I did welcome this administration's um, the money they're going to put into the NHS, but actually it's about standing still. And I think we... Um, as a parliament, we as a country have big questions to answer and what are we willing to invest in caring for some of the most vulnerable of our society and that will continue to challenge us over the next, you know, not even decade, century, it will be a challenge there. Yeah. Mental health is something that's been increasingly recognised as an important issue but also one that is arguably being inadequately responded to. Are there ways that both the church and the government can better respond to the current situation? Well, I'm encouraged by the way more people talk about their mental well-being. Uh, you, um, you know, there has been a time when we there has been a stigma about talking about how you, how your mental well-being is, and I think the fact that we talk about it 
hopefully will reduce some of that stigma. Um, you know, there's not so much stigma associated with some of our other chronic physical illnesses, and there shouldn't be with our mental well-being. And the first challenge for us is around actually generally how do we support as our communities and our workplaces and in our churches mental well-being. And I believe that's you know one of the places where the church can speak into, but also provide support for. You know, our churches are full of people every Sunday and um, therefore encouraging them to be mentally keep their mental well-being in a good place is important. But also, you now churches can provide places of silence. It does in the city here. Um, it can also pl- provide places of uh, mindfulness, as in prayer. But I also believe that we as a church should be saying something about what we believe that Christ gives us in life in all its fullness. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence that suggests people of faith have better mental well-being. So we've got something to offer uh, in that way as well. And, and increasingly, I, uh, you know, churches continue to be at the centre of their community. So how do we work in partnership with our community to create a healthy community? So what is it that we do in partnership? And how can we offer both the physical resources of our building, but also people um, in our communities and our schools to encourage each other to improve our mental well-being? One final question, Bishop Sarah, which we ask all our guests throughout the series of this podcast is if you could ask one thing at primary risk's questions, what would it be? Unfortunately, you won't get the chance to do that in the Lords, but if you could, what would it be? Gosh, if I were just to meet, because often I'm asked that question, like, what one thing would I ask the Prime Minister? Not necessarily questions. And I think if I were to ask it, it the question I would ask him, which occasionally I do ask him when I see him, is how are you? Because mm. I do think that as Lord Spirituals in government, we have a pastoral role. Mm. Um, and therefore, there is something about the... Uh, care we have of our politicians uh, and of those that sit within the Lord. So one is how are, how is he and what can I uh, pray for him? And I think uh, the truth is that that's probably where my, my preference were, were for a question would be rather than question in PMQs. Bishop Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That was a great final question from Bishop Sarah, giving us some insight into what she would ask the Prime Minister, and apparently does ask the Prime Minister. Um, Great to see that actually the Bishop's been there as a pastoral support and showing the importance of of that within the political world. Yeah, Uh, so let's jump into our musing. We're going to be somewhat less theological than previous months. We're going to talk about the role of bishops in the House of Lords, whether they should be there and maybe how that links to wider issues of church and state. So it will take as a given that theologically people of faith, indeed high-profile people of faith, should be participating in legislative politics. So we'll explore the practical question of how this should be done rather than the theological question of whether people of faith should be there. So a bit of background to bishops in the House of Lords. There's 26 of them. Uh, One of them reads prayers at the start of every day, uh, at the start of business. They're known as the Lord's Spiritual, as opposed to the Lord's Temporal, which is what the rest of the Lords in the House are known as. The the average attendance of peers in the House of Lords is around 58%. Uh, The average attendance of individual bishops is around 18%. But that's maybe slightly misleading because there's always a clerical attendance on every sitting day. They sit in the same place in the House of Lords all the time. They're on the government benches, or the government side of the House anyway. 
And as we heard from Bishop Sarah, they have to wear these specific robes uh, to go into the chamber, or they're not allowed in. I believe there was a case a couple of years ago where one of the one of the bishops, I can't remember which one, tried to come in with a suit, and he was turned away because he wasn't allowed in without his fancy robes. So let's start thinking about this then. What what do you think are some of the positives of there being bishops in the House of Lords, Razar? Yes, I guess as a Christian, um, it's nice to know that there are people in those positions who who share our faith. For me, I would say being a Christian is the most important part of my identity, uh, more so than where I live or having moved through various constituencies in the last few years alone. It's good to know that there's someone there who reflects that most central part of my identity. But I guess in recognising that, you then realise that, well, that's obviously therefore not the case for many other people. There aren't any other faith groups as explicitly represented as the as the bishops. Yeah, in terms of other positives, from from being in the House of Lords myself and, and working with a peer, I, I recognise some of the great work that individual bishops are doing as well as them as a collective. So recently the Bishop of St Albans has just introduced a private member's bill uh, which aims to record gambling-related deaths, which currently aren't, aren't recorded. And yeah, there's just lots of positive contributions from uh, the bishops in the House. One of the other things I was thinking about is the fact that almost uniquely in the House of Lords, bishops, in a way, have a constituency. Although they're not there to represent their diocese by virtue of being working bishops, they are constantly going back and forth between London and their respective dioceses, and they have that ear to the ground uh, with people, with ordinary people who are in the churches in their diocese. And I think that is a really positive influence when many lords who are vast majority over 70, majority white, majority fairly well off, probably not particularly attuned to uh, ordinary British people, whereas I'd, I'd suggest the uh, bishops probably are. In addition to that, there's the pastoral role that Bishop Sarah alluded to. If we lost the bishops, then there's always going to be other chaplains around, but it seems that other parliamentarians really do value the role that they play in that sense. What are maybe some of the negatives that we could discuss as well? Yes, I guess one of the big issues that people have is is this idea that why should one faith group be so heavily represented when that no longer represents the the faith belief makeup of our country, which I think is a fairly strong argument, really, um, even though that might not be my personal position. But Yeah, I think the number of bishops in the House mm. of Lords doesn't represent the denominational affiliation of the majority of the country yeah in terms of obviously there's an awful lot of people in church of england churches across the country but what's different to maybe 200 years ago is the the balance of church attendance among other denominations it makes sense for the established church to have that many people in the house of lords when the established church is by far and away the biggest church mm. but that is no longer the case so that is, there's an argument in that as well isn't there yeah and under the faith groups that of course uh, yeah. growing in the uk but not necessarily reflected in our politics another thing i've been reflecting on is whether being part of the established church and sitting on the government side of the house specifically is in any way restrictive to the bishops in the house of lords and i thought my instinct would be that it 
it would be that they have to they can't be party political and that that might be somewhat constrictive for them but, but looking into it i actually noticed that in many years the bishops of a whole as a whole have voted against the government more times than they voted for the government so they're obviously not afraid yeah. to be subversive of times and you look at some of the speeches that the bishops have made they make really good contributions and they're quite happy being quite strong in what they say so although they can't be party political in practice that doesn't seem to prevent them uh, being strong in that way although i work for a methodist minister who is also in the lords and he takes the labor whip so he's obviously even less restricted uh, but I don't think that's the strongest argument for getting rid of them. Yeah, and I guess on the opposite um, side of that, I was reading something that was saying that the the issue with bishops being in the House of Lords isn't the impact that uh, bishops have on politics. It was more of a fear of what the politics can do to the church and saying that actually by putting them in this elevated position of power... Uh, the church is then less able to be free and as radical as perhaps it would like to be because of it having this um, this formal position. Yeah, I suppose regardless of the reality of what the bishops actually get up to in the chamber, mm. vast majority of the population aren't watching the oh, debates yeah. in the yeah. Lords every day. So just the very their very presence in their elevated position mm. probably outweighs the practical work that they do in the chamber. <laughs> I suppose linking into what we were saying with other faith groups not being represented is the comparison of the UK Parliament with other countries and the fact that Britain is the only sovereign democratic country in the world which has automatic religious representation in its legislature and the only other country that reserves places in its parliament for unelected religious leaders is Iran mm. so if this elevated status is to be defended you'd have to make a case for why the UK specifically should have this arrangement, either that or say that other countries should take up similar yeah. arrangements. Yeah. And I think that's a really hard case to make. I think that that was really surprising to me because I think we we often hold on to this this notion of the UK being a Christian country in whatever we understand that to mean, but there's some sort of therefore there is a place for privilege of the church. Um, but actually hearing that help me realise that, that that's that's still the case in many countries but actually that position isn't as formal as it still is here Yeah, I suppose that's when it links into wider questions of church and state, you can't really talk about bishops in the House of Lords without discussing the broader role of having an established church in this country as well as broader reform of the House of Lords and there's, there's plenty of talk about that at the moment potentially moving the House of Lords up to York. Yeah, sounds good to me. Other voices. <laughs> don't know how it would work practically. Um, but also the voices calling for the abolition of the, the House of Lords in general. So you can't have this uh, discussion in a vacuum. And I, I think I'm still surprised at just how big of a role the state still has in the church as well as vice mm. versa yeah. in terms of even last month when we are talking to Desmond Swain him talking about the work of the Ecclesiastical Committee and how any kind of big changes that the Church of England have to make uh, still have to go through both Houses of Parliament, any changes to the prayer book, changes to definition of marriage, obviously that's a hot topic at the moment. Another thing that surprised me was how bishop, the bishops that go in the House of Lords are even appointed, that the Prime Minister still has a role to play in that. Right. And until very recently, uh, the Church of England Synod had to offer up two 
potential bishops to go in the House of Lords and the Prime Minister got to choose from those two. The, the Church offered mm -hmm. a first preference and a second preference, but uh, the Prime Minister could veto the first preference right. um, if they wanted. And apparently Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair both did that, which very much surprises me <laughs> that yeah. you kind of think that it's more of a nominal or ceremonial role almost that the state has in the governance of the church but occasionally the state still uses its role quite actively right yeah in that way but i suppose in many ways that puts the church between a rock and a hard place because if the state actually uses its official power in making change in the church you can easily make the argument that <laughs> the general synod and the church knows how to govern itself better than parliamentarians many of whom aren't christian but as soon as you make the argument that the state shouldn't interfere in the church then what's the point in having the established church anyway if it is just going to be a ceremonial role then what's the point in keeping it i think yeah i think that was something i was thinking about in terms of tradition um like a lot of this gets tied up in religious traditions things like the monarchy and and uh, the role of the church in that and I think so much of our instinct at the moment is, oh, this needs to change and we need to get rid of tradition and we need to be modern and progressive. And in so many cases, that's that's true. But I've been thinking recently about intergenerational justice and actually the role of uh, inheritance in the Bible and this idea of passing things down and kind of celebration of tradition. And I think not necessarily, this isn't offering insight, but more just offering a question that I think what is the role of tradition in terms of our churches and how do we how do we celebrate what's gone before us um, as we as we progress and as we move forward i think it's an important thing to consider in the state and in the church yes and the church has always considered tradition as one of its sources of authority alongside reason alongside scripture alongside experience so we shouldn't completely disregard tradition not that we should do things just because it's the way that they've always been done, uh, but it's not something to disregard entirely as well. Okay, so on that then, Cameron, if you had to take a position, what would you say? I think my instinct would be that we absolutely need to reform the House of Lords. Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced by the argument for getting rid of it entirely, but there's no doubt that it's not fit for purpose as it is. So if the House of Lords or the Upper Chamber was to be reformed, I would absolutely hope that there were bishops in a reformed house of lords mm -hmm. but i wouldn't think that they should be there automatically i think whatever way in which that the people in the upper chamber would be appointed or elected i would hope that there are people of faith and high profile people of faith such as bishops in there but i don't think that they should have an automatic spot strong argument same question back at you so I think, like I was saying, it's good to, for us to be represented by our faith and by that important identity. Um, but I think it's something we should hold on to loosely, um, not try and protect ourselves and panic about the fact that maybe our country is not as open to faith as it once was, but actually accept that whatever our status is in the country, we, we can still be confident um, of our faith and confident of its value and actually work towards challenging injustices against others, not just worrying about ourselves. There you go. That's what we think, but we wanted to know what do you think? We'll be putting some stuff out on social media. We'd love it if you could engage with that around these sorts of issues. But thus ends our monthly musing.
this month's action, we are encouraging you to get involved with a campaign we're running at the Joint Public Issues team, which is called Living Lent. What is Living Lent? So Living Lent is a way to help Christians, to help uh, churches think through how they can engage better with their environment and care for creation and consider that from a faith perspective. That sounds incredibly exciting. How do I get involved? So I think you can head to the Living Lent website um, where you can sign up for daily reflections that will help you think through these things. Um, There's a Facebook community to help you with some ideas on how you can get involved with the environmental actions that we're offering. Mm, The challenges are quite hard. So the Facebook community is a great way of getting hints and tips from other people to help you persevere through the six challenges that are on offer and what are the six challenges oh i was hoping i could ask you that Uh, (laughs) it's a lot to remember (laughs) so the first one is going plastic free um single-use plastic free we have living locally so only buying um things from your local area there is taking up alternative modes of transport that's one this is the one i was going to do but then i realized that three days into lent um, I'm flying somewhere, <laughs> so I failed on that one very early on. But that's okay. Other people won't be flying. Start cycling, start walking. It's going to be great. We've got uh, giving up meat. Giving that's up meat, another yes. one. Which easy enough for me to do. Already a vegetarian. You're already a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have reducing energy usage. Yes, by ten percent. Doesn't sound like much, but I reckon it'd be quite hard to even reduce it by ten percent. Was that six? Now we have one more, which is not buying anything new. Not buying anything new. Yeah, so... Are you a big shopper? Not especially. Um, so I think I could probably manage that one. I might manage that without even trying. Yeah. Maybe that reflects badly on me because I never buy any new clothes or anything. Maybe that's but... just being interns where... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just the intern life. Cool. So which challenge are you hoping to take up, Razar? Okay, so I feel like I'm going to have to try the plastic-free one, um, which sounds slightly terrifying. I think that's the hardest one. Mm. I went shopping last week and I realised how how tough it would be but I'm gonna give it a good go and I my arm is being twisted to also do plastic free yeah. so Rosella and we have another intern in the joint public issues team who are both going plastic free and trying to make me do so and I'm very worried <laughs> but will it be okay I think it'll be okay it's and gonna be it's, okay that's the whole point of living Lent is that you do it in community um so we'll be passing each other tips maybe passing each other food when we've run out of plastic free food <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think I'll give up meat as well, because that's oh. a slightly easier one. I'll just come come onto your level on the vegetarianism. Yeah, and to be fair, most meat comes in plastic, so... It does. It would be <laughs> struggle to eat meat anyway if I'm going plastic-free. But we're looking forward to it, aren't we? It's and I hope you can look forward to it too. But yes, you can find these six challenges, uh, as well as those reflections on the Living Lent website and the Facebook group. We'll post links on our social media do get involved. It's an incredibly exciting opportunity for Christians. Final couple of cheeky plugs from us. On the 7th of March, it's the JPIT conference in Derby. The theme is renewal and rebellion. It's all about the environment and the economy, how they interact, how we can be better advocates for climate justice. We've got some really amazing speakers. If you haven't got a ticket yet, they're selling out fast. So go and get yours, 7th of March. And if you are coming, make sure you come say hi to us. Um, we'd love to get to know you more. If you're not coming to the conference or you want to chat to us before then, do use our social media to get in touch. 
We have a Twitter account, which is FIP underscore podcast, and Instagram, which is Faith in Politics Podcast. Thank you for joining us on Faith in Politics, a podcast brought to you by the Joint Public Issues team of the Baptist Union of Great Britain, Church of Scotland, and the Methodist and United Reformed Churches. To close, we have a final prayer from our wonderful colleague at the Joint Public Issues team, Steve Hucklesby. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that your will be done. We thank you for the opportunities you provide. We thank you for the freedom that we have to express our faith privately and collectively as your church. We thank you for those people throughout history and today who use positions of power to challenge injustice and to stand up for the marginalised. But we ask that we don't settle into comfort and complacency. We ask that you help us to hold our power and our privilege loosely. We ask that in positions of power and positions of powerlessness, we seek to act with justice, to love mercy, and to walk with humility with you. We pray that you remind us that you are God and that we are not. We pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that your will be done.